0: Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Daniel James Brown about his new book, Facing the Mountain, the true story of Japanese-American heroes in World War II. Dan is the best-selling author of The Boys in the Boat, the story of nine Americans and their epic quest for gold at the 1936 Berlin Olympics, among other several terrific books. Dan lives just outside of Seattle, Washington. Dan, welcome to That Said. Thanks for having me on. So I loved this book. I loved The Boys in the Boat. Um, And I'd like to start, as I always start, by asking our authors to tell us about themselves, their writing process, sort of what they were trying to accomplish when they undertook this project. Sure.
1: Yeah, well, so I... uh... I've had sort of a strange arc in my life. I've had three different careers. I I was, I was an English major in college, and uh, after graduate school, I taught college English for a while, uh, and then when my, my wife and I got married, I needed to make more of a living than I could doing that, so I became a technical editor and writer for a while, and then around 2000 or so, I just started writing, um, attempting to write a book. Basically just for fun. I was just going to be a hobby, And to my great surprise, uh, that book, which was about a forest fire in Minnesota in the 1890s actually got picked up and published and, and did reasonably well. And so it started this, uh, third, uh, career that I am now in the middle of, of writing, uh, narrative nonfiction pretty much full time, which is uh, something I really enjoy. I mean, I, I love doing research. I love uh, telling personal stories from history. So, you know, it suits it suits me well. But um what I try to do in all my books is I I don't consider myself an historian. I wasn't trained in as a historian. But what I try to do is uh to find personal stories, stories about individuals that um shed some kind of light on a slice of history that maybe I feel has been somewhat overlooked. So, um, so all four of my books have done that, including this, uh, this most recent one, uh, Facing the Mountain.
0: And it's so interesting, when you read it, I had to keep reminding myself, this is a work of nonfiction. This is not historical fiction, because the way you write by telling the story through individual Life stories, it reads as if it's historical fiction, which makes it so readable.
1: Yeah. So I do try to use a lot of novelistic techniques. Um, I'm, I'm only using things I can verify as factual, but I am trying to, um, see, um, a particular piece of history literally through the eyes of my characters. And, um, I find that, that requires a certain kind of research. It requires me to really get to know very closely the individuals I'm writing about, uh, which is often difficult because often they are deceased. So I spent a lot of time with family members, talking to them about their grandparents or, or whatever the relationship might be. And in the case of this most recent book, a lot of time um, watching, viewing, listening to the um, videotaped oral histories of, the uh, the individuals who become the characters in my book.
0: The other thing that I found in reading this and the prior book, "The Boys in the Boat," both of which are wonderful reads, this one, "Facing the Mountain," I think should be a must-read. It should be required reading as part of any high school um, and above um, curriculum, given the 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 state of racism that we still experience in, in our country. Cause it's, it's just a great exploration of, of the, the problems that the Japanese in America and Japanese Americans encountered.
1: Uh, yes. And I, you know, I didn't, um, when I started this book, um, four and a half years ago, um, was really right at the beginning of the Trump administration and, um, the world was changing in ways that I think were unfortunate, um, but there were a lot of echoes between what I was researching about these Japanese American families and their immigration experience, for instance, and what I was watching on the news at night as all this anti-immigrant rhetoric was floating to the surface. When I was reading about and talking to the family members about um, their grandfathers or their fathers being incarcerated in camps um, and the families being torn apart by that. I was watching on the evening news. Um, I was watching, you know, families being torn apart at our southern border. So through the whole process of writing this book, um, it sharpened my awareness of some of the parallels um, between what is happening now and what has happened um, in our recent past during the World War II era and and really well before that, in terms of anti Asian. Uh, rhetoric and anti-Asian violence.
0: It's sad when you read it in some sense that we've not made as much progress as, as we should.
1: Yeah, it was, I mean, it was surprising to me in some ways. I thought I knew a lot about uh, the subject. Actually, having grown up on the West Coast, I've always had many Asian American friends. And I thought I knew quite a bit about, for instance, the Japanese American experience. But um, I didn't really fully understand Um, the depths of the historical racism until I began to, as I say, talk to family members and and really do a deep dive on on the research.
0: So why don't we start there? I I, want to talk about the four major um, protagonists whose life you follow through the book, and we'll turn to that in, in a second. But maybe this is just with that last answer, a good way to say The the steamship um, city of Tokyo arrives in Hawaii in um, 1885. That's Mm -hmm. essentially the first immigrant. um, We call it you call it the Ise I S S E I Ise Mm -hmm. community, which would be uh, at my age my um, grandparents' generation Mm -hmm. arriving Mm -hmm. 1880s to early 19 Nine nineteen hundreds. Mm-hmm. So, tell tell us if you will, why why the immigration from Japan? What what were they leaving in Japan, and how were they received upon arrival here, both in both in the mainland and in Hawaii? Because it's a little bit different, right, between the two. Places
1: it is, um, and that was very interesting to me. So, yeah, beginning in the mid nineteenth century, but particularly in the eighteen eighties and through the rest of the nineteenth century, there were successive waves of immigration uh, out of emigration out of Japan to the United States, um, and that was driven largely by the fact that um, Japan went through a series of devastating economic downturns and also through a series of droughts followed by floods that were um, extremely hard on the rural populations in Japan, especially. So a lot of the immigrants came from places like the countryside around Hiroshima or Kagoshima, very rural Japanese prefectures where, where people were reduced literally to living in huts, huddled around charcoal hibachis, eating grass uh for their meals the absolutely hor- horrible horrible um, living conditions uh for rural japanese uh, at that time so um so japanese uh immigrants were uh attracted by offers from uh two different kinds of american concerns basically the big sugar growers in hawaii uh began to recruit japanese immigrants to come work in the cane fields in hawaii uh which was a uh, turned out to be a very brutal and exploitative, um, system, uh, w- and once these immigrants arrived in Hawaii. Um, and then, uh, other immigrants were attracted, uh, to the west coast of the United States, primarily by railroad companies, the Canadian Pacific and, and also American railroad companies that needed laborers to construct the, uh, the new railroads that were opening up the West. So these these waves came, uh, several waves, uh, large waves of Japanese immigrants began arriving in Hawaii and um, on the West Coast of the United States during this time. And um, they did sort of grow the, the, out of that experience of these two different groups of Isei, of first-generation immigrants. There's sort of two groups arose. Uh, it, there was the one group that arose in Hawaii their children, the Nisei, the next generation of um kids, these who were now Americans by birthright, they grew up in plantation towns. They uh spoke pidgin English almost exclusively. They grew up in Hawaii, which was um ex- an exploitative system, but it was also a um very um multiracial uh culture. And that was quite different from the uh the offspring of the kids that wound up growing up on the West Coast. They, um, by and large, their families, their parents, over several decades of very hard work, they became proprietors of small businesses like laundries or flower shops, or they farmed small patches of land. So those kids grew up with more um, typical sort of middle-class um American upbringings. So those are the sort of the two cultural groups that arose out of out of the immigration.
0: It, though both groups similarly faced racial discrimination, right? I mean, at yes. the time of their arrival and through the 1950s, I think. Yes. They, the the Issei um, were not allowed to be U.S. citizens, right?
1: they were explicitly prohibited from being U.S. citizens simply on basis of their ancestry. So, yes, they ran into a great deal of um, not just de facto segregation uh, and racism, but institutionalized uh, segregation and racism. Yeah,
0: legal, du jour, as they call it, the, the le- exactly. legalized um, racism. Now, the Nisei, the, the, my parents' generation, yes. if you will, the mm-hmm. they, um, born in the nineteen late to middle 1920s, early 1930s, um, become citizens by birthright, even though their parents um, cannot. And again, in the echoes of modern versus what you were writing about, we we heard former President Trump talking about the ending of birthright right. citizenship, right? Yeah, yep. exactly. So, so the, the Nisei are birthright citizens, and how are, how, are, how are each sort of assimilated? You said that their families are different. One is plantation-based, which was just slave labor. It really in, was. In, for all intents and purposes, they were indentured servants. Yes. No different than indentured servants, you know, everywhere else. Mm-hmm. Company shop, that's where you could buy your food. You never make enough money to get out of debt. And the, the hours are backbreaking and brutal. Yep. But h- how are the kids, the Nisei, assimilated into, into the schools and into the population? We see how the parents are a little bit different. How how, how are the kids treated?
1: So the kids actually, as it's often the case with second generation Im- American immigrants, are much more assimilated than their parents. They grow up speaking English, although Japanese is often spoken at home. Um, they become, like one of my characters, Katz Miho, becomes the president of the student body in his high school on Maui. Um, Fred Shiyosaki, another of my subjects, becomes the president of the photography club and the yearbook editor at his high school in Spokane, Washington. So by and large, uh, before Pearl Harbor, uh, happens, they are beginning to, um, to live, um, either middle-class or near-middle-class American lives. They drink Coca-Colas, they go to movie theaters. They're living, by and large, pretty much as their white uh, contemporaries are before the war begins.
0: So your book more or less begins with the day, December 7th, 1941, a day that will live in infamy and my mother's birthday. Um, Said it ruined her whole birthday. I it did. I told her she couldn't take it personally. It wasn't directed at her birthday. <laughs> but but tell us about the day, because I found the history of December 7th interesting, um, what intelligence was coming in, intelligence was missing. It had, again, shades of 9-11 right. um, on December 7th. Tell us about right. that day and then sort of the world the world changed for the Issei and the Nisei both.
1: Right. So one of the reasons I started the book the way I did is I wanted us to see, my readers, to see Pearl Harbor from a somewhat different vantage point than most have probably seen it before. I mean, we've all grown up with uh, movies about Pearl Harbor. We've read about Pearl Harbor. We've seen it a certain way. But I thought it was important to see that day through the eyes of Japanese Americans, Americans of Japanese descent, because when those Japanese zeros and bombers appeared over Pearl Harbor and they looked up and many of them were there that day, uh, the population in Honolulu was uh, nearly a third uh, Japanese um, American, when they looked up and they saw the insignia of the rising sun on the underwings of those aircraft, they knew instantaneously that their lives were going to change in profound ways. So everybody was shocked by Pearl Harbor. Everybody knew it went into a different world. But those Japan, young Japanese Americans, especially, um, they immediately confronted an existential crisis. And the, the book really unfolds from that moment. What I tried to do in this book was um sort of to narrow the subject down. I realized that young Japanese-American men of draft age in particular, from that day forward, had a really difficult set of obstacles to overcome. And I'm always interested in stories about young Americans who have to confront um, obstacles and how they persevere and through sheer resilience and force of will um, overcome those obstacles. And this becomes that kind of story because they have to move forward from that day as their families begin to be incarcerated in camps and figure out what their role in this country really is.
0: I, I found it interesting in reading Boys in the Boat and, and this, this, thread that you had between the two books of the struggles of ordinary Americans and the values and attitude that allowed them to rise, to meet uh, and overcome the challenges that were put forth sort of almost by force of uh, of sheer will.
1: Yes, it really was. I mean, I didn't set off to write a book that had the same themes as the boys in the boat, but I think in many ways it does. And I think that's, as I say, I think that's just partly that I'm drawn to stories like that. In some ways, all my books have been about, um, about that kind of thing. So it, um, it reminded me that, um, well, one, one thing it reminded me of is that I'm very interested in that generation, the World War II generation, my parents' generation and how they overcame the kinds of things that they did. And one thing the book taught me was the Japanese American, um, were simply one a different face of that same generation, and and in many ways had many of the same values and characteristics that, um, that my father and my uncles and my mother and my uh, aunts all had.
0: Yeah, and we'll talk about that as as we get further into the book. But but I, I agreed with you when I read it. I said to myself, this could have been my parents. Yeah, um, Jewish from New York totally different than Japanese and Hawaii, but the same values, the same ideals, the same efforts to overcome. Absolutely. So December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor is attacked. And what happens in the aftermath, I guess, from the point of view of, of your book, really is February... Of, um, of 1942. So December 7th, 1941 occurs. The government is trying to process what happened here, both militarily and, and what to do as a war effort matter. And it culminates for a for your protagonists in um, executive order 9066, uh, right. February 19, I think, of yes. 1942. So, Can you tell us about 9066? And it was a Roosevelt order, you know, so.
1: Yes, uh, it was. And there was quite a bit of debate um, uh, within the Roosevelt administration about whether um, this was uh, going to be constitutional or not. Um, But in the end, the military advisors won out uh, in this argument within the administration. And uh, Executive Order 9066, authorized the government to um, forcibly remove um, the entire population of Japanese and Japanese Americans from the West Coast. It created actually ex- an exclusion zone um, along the western parts of um, Washington and Oregon, uh, California, and a bit of, of Arizona. It authorized their forced removal and their relocation to um what were in essence concentration camps, and it took a number of months for that to actually be implemented. But of course, that came as an enormous shock to um, to the people, uh, Japanese American families living in the West. It meant the immediate and complete disruption of their lives. It meant um, shuttering businesses that um, the Issei uh, parents had spent decades building. It meant walking away from land, leaving crops in the fields. It meant um, walking away from schools that the kids had been attending, walking away from um, beloved pets, leaving them behind, selling possessions for pennies on the dollar or simply giving them away. It was a complete and utterly devastating um, blow for, for uh, Japanese Americans.
0: And, um, you, in that answer, used the phrase walk away from, but there was nothing, um, uh, permissive about it. It was, it was a requirement. They, it was,
1: it was. I mean, it was literally in some cases there were armed escorts. So in a sense, it was at the point of a gun that people were led to the buses and put on them. And, um, and I say walk away also because they weren't, it's not as if they could get in their family car and drive to these places. They could only um, bring with them whatever they could carry to the whatever street corner or national guard armory or wherever it was they were supposed to assemble to get on the buses that would take them away to their camp. So they literally could only bring what they could carry with them.
0: And, you know, that shades of the Holocaust say shades of the Jewish community and. So in this in this case, the executive order goes in on February 19th, and March 31, the the, the relocation um, begins. So there's not if you to wind down a business to sell your property to store your personal belongings between February 19 and March 31 is hardly enough time to do that.
1: Oh, it was virtually impossible. Um, people had to make absolutely heartrending decisions about what to do with their possessions, or their businesses, or their land. It was it was absolutely crushing.
0: You you, you have a quote in the book, and I think, think I want you to talk a little bit about words just for a second before we we move into the the camps themselves. But you you quote George Orwell. I, I'll read just a portion of the quote, um, which is that political language is designed to make lies sound truthful and murder respectable. W- w- tell me why you quoted Orwell on that. And let's talk about the language of the government versus the reality on the ground. Yeah.
1: So I think it is, I think I also say in the book, I think it's important if you're going to tell an honest story to use honest language. The government um, used uh, very euphemistic terms uh, to describe what they were doing with Japanese Americans. They called the forest removals evacuations. They called the, um, the first camps that these folks were sent to were oftentimes, um, just fairgrounds. So where the people had to live in horse stalls, they called those assembly centers. Um, they called, um, the um, permanent camps um, in scattered through the American desert, basically relocation centers. So they wrapped what they were doing in language that really belied the reality of what they were doing. So one thing that I, I do in the book, I don't I'm not insistent on it, but I do refer to those camps as concentration camps. And I want everybody to understand that I am in no way drawing a parallel between uh, the Japanese American camps and places like Auschwitz or Dachau. Uh, Those were extermination camps. They were death camps. They were slave labor camps. And there's nothing in modern history that equates with them. But the fact is, these people were were concentrated. It was a concentrated population put behind barbed wire for political reasons. And they were concentration camps. And so I think it's important to acknowledge that when talking about them, to use the um, the honest term. Actually, FDR himself used the term uh, before the war, sort of hypothetically speaking about what might happen to Japanese Americans. He himself uh, talked about concentration camps.
0: And once again, um, his wife was the voice of conscience, but um, overridden.
1: Yes. Yes. Eleanor was quite uh, outspoken, uh, I think, with him in private um, from what we can garner, but also publicly. She made a deliberate um, a show of immediately traveling to some of these camps and um, and talking to and um, uh, sympathizing with the, uh, the people who had been put behind barbed wire.
0: So, you know, you read something like this book, and you thought when you start the book. I, I know about that right. just as you said, you thought you knew about that. I said, Oh, oh I know about that. Right. And then you realize, Jesus, I didn't know anything about yeah. that. And so I, uh, assuming that the readers um, may not know as much as um, they think they know, would you talk a little bit about the, the, the camps themselves? Where were they? What were the conditions, you know, because you use the word concentration camp and people might be thinking, well, that's a bit of an overstatement. But when you describe where the camps were, what the conditions were in those camps and the liberties that they didn't have, mm-hmm. I think the definition becomes more clearly accurate. So could you talk a little bit about where they were and how people got there and what the life yeah. was like there, please?
1: Yes, absolutely. So as I say, they were first sent um because the camps weren't yet constructed, they were housed in fairgrounds and um, the, in Salinas, California, the Rodeo grounds, places like that. Um, but within a month or two, um, the camps were being built. There were 10 camps scattered around mostly the American West. There were actually two in Arkansas also, but most of them were out in the West. They were in particularly bleak, inhospitable places, um, places like Post in Arizona or Tule Lake in Northern California. These were places that were miserably hot in the summer, miserably cold in the winter. Um, people lived in barracks that for all the world looked like barracks from uh, Dachau or someplace like that. They were just very simple uh, pine and tar paper um, barracks. Each family was assigned uh, generally one room, 20 foot by 20 foot room in which the entire family had to live. There were public latrines. Um, there were mess halls where everybody ate communally. One of the real effects on the, on the folks that were there was it really, um, caused a lot of family stress and a lot of dissolution among families that had traditionally eaten together and been together. Um, it disrupted their way of life. So the conditions, uh, conditions were, were hard both in the summer and the winter. And of course, they were surrounded in most cases by barbed wire and guard towers. And in those guard towers at most of these facilities, there were men with machine guns. So, um, both psychologically and physically, um, it was a, um, it was, it was a traumatic thing. It was simply a traumatic thing to suddenly one day be living in Glendale, California, running a flower shop. And uh, a few weeks later be living surrounded by barbed wire in uh, the Arizona desert.
0: Right. With the government calling you, uh, the Issei, um, enemy aliens. That's what they were referred to as, right? Yes. And
1: actually, even the Nisei, the young men, those who went immediately after Pearl Harbor and tried to enlist in the military, like millions of other young American men, the Selective Service also classified them as enemy aliens, even though they were American citizens and um refused to um, allow them into the service initially
0: yeah which was which was complicated for them because their peers, those who were assimilated were were going off to, in this patriotic um, enlistment uh, to fight uh, uh, the, the the enemy, and they endeavored to do so, many of them were in like the Hawaii National Guard. And they yes. were then determined to be enemy aliens and prohibited. Yes.
1: Exactly. Um, it was, it was an enormous slap in the face. And, um, you know, the, one of the reasons I focused the book on, on these four young men that I do is because although Japanese Americans of both genders and all ages, um, certainly were traumatized in, in many ways. It was the young men who, uh, particularly young men who were in high school or just starting college, whose peers were all suddenly appearing in uniform and going off to serve in the military, and who were told that they were the enemy, had a particular kind of trauma inflicted on them.
0: So let's pause for a second as we continue in our narrative and tell us a little bit about uh, Katz and Fred and Rudy and Gordon, the four. Protagonists of, of
1: the book. Sure. So just very quickly, uh, Katz, uh, Miho grew up on Maui, uh, in a plantation town. Um, he was a very popular kid, actually. I think I mentioned before he became the president of student body at Maui High. He actually was a um, student at the University of Hawaii, uh, at the time of the attack on Pearl Harbor. He witnessed the, uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor from the roof of his residence hall. He immediately uh, joined a thing called the the Hawaii Territorial Guard, um, but then was subsequently dismissed from it because of his ancestry. Uh, Another of them is Fred Shiosaki. Fred grew up um, uh, in Spokane, Washington, in actually a a sort of rough part of Spokane down by the railroad yards called Hilliard. Um, And Fred was just, he just passed away a few weeks ago. He was a really sweet guy and a guy who was not inclined to fight. But um, it was a, he grew up in a neighborhood where there were a lot of different uh, ethnicities and he could not abide ethnic slurs. So he often got in fights when um, somebody hurled slurs at him. So he learned, although he's a very gentle man, he learned to fight um, early on the streets of um, Spokane. Another was uh, Rudy Tokiwa. Rudy grew up on a farm in Salinas, uh, California, and um, was attending Salinas High School uh, when the war broke out. His family was, um, the FBI actually uh, raided his house looking for contraband, and then they were removed um, to post in Arizona. He was one of the young men who um, volunteered, when they were finally allowed to, volunteer to sign up uh, in the, for the military from within one of the camps. And then the fourth guy, Gordon Hirabayashi, is completely different, um, sort and
0: he, of. And I just say, he, he's my favorite.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's hard for Gordon not to be a favorite. He's a really interesting character. Um, Gordon had a very different tact. Um, Gordon was a student at the University of Washington in Seattle when the war began. He was also a Quaker, and even before the war, he was a conscientious Objector. But, um, one of the first things that happened was that a curfew was imposed on anybody of Japanese ancestry in Seattle. Gordon almost immediately began to deliberately violate that curfew. Um, and then when time came for the Japanese Americans in Seattle to be put on buses and taken away to camp, Gordon just didn't get, uh, on the bus. He became the last Japanese American living in Seattle. Instead, he went down, he wrote a statement of his objections in sort of broad constitutional terms, took the statement, downtown Seattle, walked into the FBI offices, turned himself in, um, and uh, that began what turned into a long protracted legal battle that worked its way all up up to the Supreme Court.
0: And we'll talk about that. So March 3142 through February 1st, Forty-three. the Issei and the Nisei are co-located in these camps um, as enemy aliens, and the war effort is proceeding and there's a manpower need, and Roosevelt writes a memo, a famous memo of February 143 to Secretary of War Stimson um, that changed the life of the, the Nisei Men. So talk, talk about that, that memo to, to Stimson and, and what, it, what it allowed for, I guess, on the right. one hand, and the, 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 the struggles, the moral and ethical and other struggles that it created for Nisei.
1: Right. So that was the point at which the administration, after a long debate, finally reversed course and decided to allow um, Nisei men to enlist in the military. And specifically um, to create an all Japanese-American uh, fighting unit that came to be called the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. So overnight, it um, allowed these young men, um, many of whom had tried to enlist and been refused, been told they were enemy aliens. It uh, suddenly offered them the opportunity to uh, to enter the military. That set off uh, an enormous debate Um particularly in the camps, young men who were living behind barbed wire um, did not all agree about the right thing to do here. Some of them, uh, many of them, thought that uh, the last thing on earth they should do would be fight for and cooperate with the military arm of the government that had imprisoned them in these camps. Other young men, though, um, thought that, well, this is an opportunity to prove our loyalty, and perhaps if we fight and bleed and, if need be, die uh, in this war, that after the war, uh, Japanese-Americans will be treated better. So it set off a debate that actually fractured many families, a, and there are still family disputes about it today, decades later. Um, but that was really uh, the beginning of... Um, the opportunity for military service for those that that choose, chose to do it.
0: So it creates this patriotism versus resistance uh, yeah. debate within the camps, and people chose different things. I think yes. tens of thousands chose not to, and tens of thousands chose to. And you thought, well, fine, here's the opportunity to serve, and they'll now be treated like ordinary Americans, if you will, um, who want to enlist in the draft, but but not so not so fast, if you will, right? Because they, unlike Italian Americans or German Americans, you know, both enemies uh, uh, during the same war, who had no such restrictions, are f- are told you can enlist, but first you have to fill out a questionnaire. Yeah. So tell us about the questionnaire, and let's talk particularly about questions 27 and 28, please.
1: Yes, yeah, so at, at about this point, uh, everybody of Japanese uh, ancestry, Issei and Nisei, were required to fill out this loyalty questionnaire. Then two questions on that uh, form, 27 and 28, asked uh, these young men, A, uh, to um, affirm that they would um, – serve in active combat anywhere and at any time they were asked to do so? And the second question asked them, 28 asked them to renounce any allegiance they had uh, to a foreign government, um, including the Empire of Japan. And so on the surface of it, that might seem like an easy thing to answer. But for uh, both the Issei and the Nisei, those were very difficult questions for the young, for the the Issei, uh, renouncing their Japanese citizenship would mean they had no citizenship at all because they were not allowed to become American citizens. But for the young men who were draft age, um, many of them were deeply offended that they were being asked to renounce a loyalty that they didn't have and that they were, secondly, that they were being asked to... Um, Affirm um, a, a statement, affirm a firm of loyalty, um, on a form that other Americans were not given. So it was a; it became a matter of principle. Almost all of them, those who were willing to serve, would have um, happily signed the form and answered those two questions, if not for the fact that um, they were being singled out simply because of their racial identity. Um, and required to fill that form out. So that became another uh, object of great contention within the camps. Those who refused to answer both questions came to be called the no-no boys, and they were labeled explicitly as disloyal by the government and actually sent to separate facilities um, as disloyal.
0: I thought that the 28th or maybe 27th question said they have to for swear or some word like that, allegiance to the emperor yes. of, of Japan, right? Yes, that's um, correct. And the, the Nisei who were born here exactly. may not even known who the emperor was. Right. No less exactly. allegiance to,
1: So it would be pretty know. much as if you or I were suddenly asked to uh, swear, this, you know, swear we had no allegiance to the emperor of Japan. It was a bizarre question. But it was also an offensive question to them because they were being singled out to answer it.
0: Yeah, and we saw, we've seen this in history. Saw this with with Catholics and this notion of whether John Kennedy would be, you know, sort of beholden to the the Pope versus the you know the Constitution of the United States. You, you see this Jews will they be beholden to Israel versus the United States? Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a it's a terrible device. Yes. Racially or religiously based, um, and it gives rise to, I think, the time to talk in a little bit more depth about um, uh, Gordon Hirabayashi, because this these loyalty questions, beside the earlier "I will not abide the curfew," this whole loyalty issue um, was of great offense. To, to him and what he believed were the constitutional principles that underlied uh, the United States. So let's yes. talk in depth about him for, if we, if you don't mind.
1: Uh, yes. Yeah. So uh, Gordon, as I say, he was conscientious objector, so he probably would have objected to service um, regardless, but that wasn't really his issue. Um, he was a very principled young man, yeah, really extraordinarily. So he was also um able to articulate those principles very clearly. Um, he um, the, his, the issues for him were basically the obvious racial uh, animus uh, behind the policies of the curfew and the incarcerations. He deeply believed in the American Constitution. And he believed, actually a little naively as it turned out, that he would ultimately be vindicated in the courts because the American Constitution seemed to him so clearly to guarantee equal protection under the law for him as an American, whether he was of Japanese ancestry or not. So for Gordon, it all revolved really about this very basic constitutional issue um, rather than a question of where his loyalties lay. It was a fundamental American question for him, a question of what it means to be American and um, and whether the court system would ultimately vindicate um, vindicate his faith in the Constitution.
0: Yeah, and um, as a lawyer, um, and for the law students out there who may be your lawyers that might be listening, you have as a result of, of Gordon's challenge, you have these tandem cases. You have Hirabayashi uh, versus the United States, uh, the 1943 decision um, where the challenge was to the curfew of the 9066 order. And then you have the famous case of um, Kuramatsu versus the United States, 1944, which challenged the exclusion portion of 9066. So two cases back to back, one challenging the curfew and one challenging the the exclusion. And I can tell you how they come out, but but if you if you could tell us, it's probably <laughs> your better storyteller than
1: am I. Um so I'm much more familiar with uh Hirobayashi of the United States than Karamatsu. But um so first with Hirabayashi. The, uh, Gordon pressed the case, uh, through local courts and appeals court, and it eventually wound up in the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, uh, unanimously, as I recall, um, sidestepped the, um, the incarceration issue and ruled only on the curfew issue, uh, in his case, which was a great blow to him because for him, the really important issue was the incarceration. Um, it sidestepped that and it found uh against him so his uh faith in the ultimate vindication in the courts was not borne out at this i recall the court found basically that um military um necessity justified um this uh, policy even though it was race based and i think in karamatsu was basically a uh, uh, as you said uh the exclusion itself was challenged there. It was not unanimous, as I recall, in that case. There were dissents, but again, the court found basically that military necessity overrode whatever constitutional arguments uh, could be made against the exclusion.
0: In in um, was a nine nothing decision. With you know, the great liberals of Frank- Frankfurter and Douglas and Black and Jackson mm-hmm. all um, agreeing whether con- concurring or, or, or not. And it held that the application of curfews against members of a, of a minority group were constitutional when the nation was at war with the country from which the group's ancestors originated. Yeah. <laughs> almost, almost impossible to to comprehend um, by modern jurisprudence. And uh, Korematsu pretty much said the same, but in Korematsu, it was a 6-3 decision with Roberts, Murphy, and Jackson dissenting, saying, you know, enough, enough is enough. We, we went along with you on curfews, but we can't go along with you on, on this exclusion. But nonetheless, there they remain two of the most shameful uh, cases and uh, you know along with dred Scott and other very Absolutely. shameful moments in, in 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 the Supreme court so I'd like to talk now, which forms a, a large part of your book the the they are allowed to join the military they sign these um questionnaires and they're, off they go. So so tell us about the 100th Infantry Battalion and the creation of the 442 Regimental Combat Team, please.
1: Yeah. So the, the first all Japanese uh, American unit was the 100th Infantry Battalion that was composed of at the at the time of the attack on Pearl Harbor. There already were a large number of Japanese Americans serving Um in the National Guard in Hawaii or in the army in Hawaii. Uh, there were actually anti-discrimination laws that within the military that kept them from discharging those people. So the army didn't quite know what to do with uh, these Japanese Americans that were already in the service. So for months, they sort of just sidelined them. They pretty much confined them to their barracks uh, in Hawaii. Um, eventually, though, uh, they changed their mind and they sent them to the American Midwest, To begin to train as an all Japanese American fighting unit. And then at the beginning of 1943, as we talked about earlier, the 442nd Regimental Combat Team was formed. And, um, and that again was to be an all Japanese, actually I say all Japanese American, that the 442nd did have, um, some, uh, white, uh, Officers, actually, most of the officers were white with almost no exceptions. Uh, the officer corps was white. So the 442nd was created and they went through basic training at a place called Camp Shelby in Mississippi. But the first unit that went into fight into combat was the 100th Infantry Battalion uh, in North Africa and Italy, followed a few months later by the 442nd.
0: So the 442nd in some sense is the Japanese equivalent of the Tuskegee Airmen. You know, yes. Segregated yes. unit. Um, so I, before we get to the battles which are um legion uh, tell us a little bit about what is the difference between a um Katonk and a Buddha head.
1: So um so when um when the Nisei recruits arrived at um, Camp Shelby in Mississippi for basic training, they came from two sources, basically A large number of them came from Hawaii. And these were kids that had grown up in plantation towns. They universally spoke pidgin English. Um, they had a sort of Hawaiian attitudes towards life. Um, the other group that arrived simultaneously, or almost simultaneously, for basic training, were mainland kids, and these were young men who, as I think I mentioned earlier, were kind of middle-class American kids. They uh, had come from places like uh, Seattle or Spokane or Los Angeles, and, and some of them were already in college at some place like UCLA. So um, when the two groups came together in uh, in basic training. It was like mixing oil and water. They didn't understand each other at all. In fact, literally, they didn't understand each other. The mainlanders could not figure out what the um, Hawaiians were saying because they were all speaking pidgin. The Hawaii guys felt disrespected because the mainlanders would scoff at their language. And so within days of them arriving in basic training, fistfights were breaking out all over, all over camp. And so the, um, the Hawaii guys began to call the mainland guys katonks for the sound that coconut makes if you, if you knock it on, on the shell, which they claimed was the sound that the, their heads made when they hit them. Um, and the mainland guys started calling the uh, Hawaii guys Buddha heads for reasons nobody seems to understand. But these two groups went at it for weeks. They just really had a hard time. Uh, meshing and integrating. Uh, and part of the problem was that the guys from Hawaii had almost no awareness of these camps, whereas many of the mainland guys either came out of the camps themselves or had close relatives living behind barbed wire. The the Hawaii guys didn't, didn't, as I say, hardly knew the camps existed. So the mainland guys were quite serious. The Hawaii guys were much more hang loosey and, you know, out to have fun. They didn't mix well until I think it was one of the chaplains got the idea to take the Hawaii guys, put them on buses, take them to one of these camps. that One one of the camps happened to be nearby in Arkansas and show them what one of these camps was like. So these guys from Hawaii in full American uniforms arrive at this camp, this camp in Arkansas. And for the first time, they see old women and children and um, people, a Japanese people of all ages and types living behind barbed wire. And even though they're in American uniforms, they're frisked before they can go into or come out of the camp. There are guard towers with machine guns pointing inward towards the people. And they're absolutely horrified. It's for the first time, they begin to understand what the mainland guys, why the mainland guys are so serious and somber all the time. So that began the process of, of knitting the two groups together.
0: Yeah. And uh, when the movie comes out, <laughs> I look forward to one, one scene in particular, um, and then we'll get to the, to the, to the war. Um, and that is um, the dance before they ship out. Yeah. Uh, so tell I mean, this is like out of West side story or something. <laughs> yeah. so, that's
1: another, another bonding experience was, yes, I think they were in, uh, Virginia or North Carolina. They were getting ready to, to ship out and, um, the, the local, um, the, uh, they threw a, the commanders threw a dance for them and they invited a bunch of, um, local white girls from the surrounding countryside to come and be dance partners. So the 442 guys are dancing with all these white girls and they're all having a good time. Girls are having a good time. Guys are having a good time. But um, some white uh, Air Corps men um, started to take a exception to that. They... First, they asked politely if they could come in and watch the dance. Then they asked if they could participate in the dance. Pretty soon, they're cutting in on all the Japanese-American kids, and the Japanese-American kids are getting cut out of all these dances. And they are getting madder, and they get madder, and they get madder. And finally, punches start getting thrown. And um, at that point, the entire 442nd descends on this dance hall. All these Japanese-American kids... Many of whom knew martial arts and, uh, and they, they start going at the white airmen. <laughs> and the, the results are disastrous for, for the white guys in this case. Uh, they end up getting literally tossed out windows and, um, karate chops and, and uh, several of them wind up in the hospital. But in the end, the uh, 442 guys prevail and resume dancing with the, the local girls.
0: But in addition, it was, I think, the culminating act, in a sense, of this months-long effort to get the 442, the katunks and the Buddha heads, if you will, to be a singular unit. And, exactly. And, and that, if you will, attack by the white airmen on on their good time said, you know what, we're we're all in this together. Yes,
1: exactly. I mean, and it was a, it was a good a good thing in terms of them going off into combat together because they were about to discover that they really did all have to depend on one another. But it absolutely was one of those transforming moments that turned them into a uh, cohesive fighting force.
0: Yeah. And so they ship out and they, they first, except for the 100th that went ahead of them, the 442 goes to Italy. Yeah. And, and they see um, combat there, um, brutal, you know, trench warfare-like um, combat. Tell us about how they perform. And then I want to talk because we don't have all that much time. And we could talk for hours about this because it's so um, meaningful and so interesting. Um, I'd like you to sort of tell us a little bit about Italy. But the two things I'd like you to... Concentrate on a bit um, is the the lost battalion of the the Vosges, mm-hmm. and then um, Sali Gainer um, and what the Japanese encountered there. Please. Right.
1: So yes, they entered combat first in Italy and they fought their way up the Italian boot on the um, western side of Italy through Tuscany, t- fighting their way uphill. One time after another, they were constantly having to take one hilltop town after another. They very quickly earned a very, um, um, earned the respect of pretty much all their commanding officers and other units uh, in the army. They were tremendous warriors and the Germans, in fact, came to fear them by their reputation. So they a, fought a series of pitched battles, uh, in Tuscany. Then they were sent, um, to the French-German border, to the edge of the Vosges forest, right along the border there. And they were given the mission of liberating a little town called Briere, which they did after several days of very heavy fighting. And they moved deeper into the Vosges forest. In the meantime, though, um, the uh, General Dahlquist, the overall uh, general in charge of them, had ordered um, some of his Texas troops. Uh, there, was, there was a unit made up of primarily former Texas National Guardsmen. Um, these Texans were ordered by Dahlquist to go further into the Vosges forest than they really should have been asked to go. And they got cut off and surrounded by the Germans on the edge of a, a long mountain top. And they began to suffer terribly. There were about 200 of them. Uh, many of them were wounded. Uh, they began to die. Some of them had gangrene. They had no medical supplies. They had uh, virtually no food. They had no drinkable water. Dahlquist, knowing he had ordered them too far into the mountains, sent one unit up after another up to try to get them out, and none could. So finally, he uh, he asked the 442nd, the all-Nisei um, unit, to try to get them down off that mountain. So for the next several days, the Japanese-American troops fight their way up to the side of that mountain against absolutely hellacious opposition, just terrible casualty levels. Um, fighting, it's hard to describe the terrain, but it's almost like a 60-degree uh, forested mountainside. They have tanks firing downhill at them, point-blank range. They took an enormous number of casualties trying to get through to those Texans. And when it was all over, K Company, which two of the guys I write about uh, were in K Company, when they came back down off that mountain after that battle, only uh, I think 17 out of the 180 of them or so that had been part of K Company at the beginning of this sequence of battles, only 17 of them were still ambulatory, were still able to walk down off the mountain themselves their casualty rate was so high. So an absolutely um horrific battle, but absolutely extraordinary accomplishment by these Nisei soldiers.
0: Yeah, in, in fact, wasn't the 442 the most decorated unit in World War II among all services and all units?
1: Yes, they are. Um, it's a little hard to prove these statistics, absolutely, but they, by all accounts, they are, in fact, the most decorated um, unit of its size and length of service, not just in World War II, but in all of American military history. They um they won an extraordinary, they were awarded an extraordinary number of battle honors, um, although many of those were were slow to come in the decades that followed. Um so they had an incredible battle record. And then very late in the war, um The artillery unit uh, from the 442nd was split off. The rest of them went back to Italy to resume the war there. But the artillery unit went back to um, Germany and um, participated in the allied invasion of the German homeland. And as the um, U.S. and the allied armies pressed into Germany, the Japanese-American artillery units were among the first to arrive uh in southern Bavaria in the uh vicinity of Dachau. And Dachau there was a main camp at Dachau, but there were also uh, a number of there were quite a large number of satellite camps around Dachau. These were all slave labor camps, absolutely horrific places. But the um the Nisei troops were uh able to participate in and in some cases lead the um, liberation of some of these satellite camps of the Dachau complex, which had an interesting irony for a lot of these young men because they were breaking down, uh, tearing down barbed wire and uh letting people out of these camps, even as their own families were still living behind barbed wire um, in, uh, uh, back in the American West. And one of the, one of the prisoners that they freed was a, a young man named Sally Gaynor, who had somehow contrived to live through several years of captivity, uh, in, uh, several different concentration camps, winding up fa- finally with his father at Dachau, and then made to, um, participate in what was basically a death march as the Nazis realized that Dachau was going to be overrun. They took several thousand of the prisoners from Dachau and began to march them south towards the uh, Alps. Not clear what they were trying to do, um, but along the way they shot anybody who lagged behind and it was an absolutely horrible situation but that's where the 522nd, the not Nisei uh, artillery unit, overtook them and, uh, and rescued uh, Sali and his father.
0: Yeah, but it, it struck me in reading that how, the reaction of the Nisei soldiers to see, you know, some analogous, but not quite analogous, because they were death camps, as you say, versus yeah. um, you know, concentration camps, internment mm-hmm. camps. But the parallel, you know, in the eyes of the Japanese, was was profound. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, they were they were literally having running tanks and jeeps through barbed wire to knock down the fences, setting you know these half starved um, folks free out of these camps. They were very very conscious that well, some of them like Rudy Tokiwa and my characters. He'd come into the army from behind barbed wire, so the irony was inescapable for the, for them.
0: So I've not focused all that much on the individuals because, as I said, um, this reads like historical fiction, and I want the reader to to read it with the anticipation of what what happens next. So I, I'm not gonna, you know, an alert spoiler. I'm not gonna tell what happens to to Katz and, and, and Fred and, and, and Rudy. Um, but tell us generally, um, the, the war ends victory over it, uh, Europe victory over Japan. What, what's the reception when, when, when these soldiers come back, what happens here in, in America?
1: So, you know, I'd love to say it was a happy ending and they were all welcomed as heroes. Um, it was somewhat mixed. I mean, uh, some, some Americans did see, see them as heroes, but I have to say that by and large, they arrived back, uh, at their former hometowns, um, mostly along the West Coast, um, about the same time that their parents were getting back from these camps. And both they and their parents pretty much entered a world that was very much like the world they left before the war. There was still a lot of racial animus uh, directed at them um they were still subject to a lot of racist attacks their lives in many ways had been completely shattered by both the war and the incarceration in these camps so on the mainland um uh with some exceptions uh for the most part um things went back to the way they had been it was quite different in hawaii though um the the guys that came back from the 442nd to Hawaii, they came back determined to change Hawaii. They had left a brutal plantation system, fought particularly heroically in Europe. And as they made their way back to Hawaii, they decided that they were going to do everything they could to, to remake Hawaii. And in fact, um, many of them immediately enrolled at college, either in Hawaii or on the mainland, Many of them then immediately went to law school. And so by the early 1950s, they were back in Hawaii um, with law degrees and they began to take control of the levers of power in Hawaii, rather by running businesses or very often by becoming politicians and controlling the levers of power Japanese Americans quite quickly became the dominant, uh, political force in, in Japan. And they did. They modernized in Japan. Hawaii, in Hawaii. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> of course, back to Hawaii and in Hawaii. Um, they, they, they really remade Hawaii and they actually gained statehood for Hawaii. At the beginning of the war, it had simply been an American uh, territory. So in that, in Hawaii, it was a, a happier picture, uh, in terms of their homecoming.
0: Yeah. In, in on the mainland, though, when the Issei returned, they really didn't get their property back. They didn't get their land back. Their businesses were gone. So they really had to start all over pretty much. Right.
1: Yeah. You know, my father was in the flower business in San Francisco uh, at this time. And many of his customers and friends were Japanese-American nurserymen and growers. And um, my father was a very gentle man. He seldom got angry. But one of the few times I ever saw him visibly angry was when he talked about what had happened to his friends and customers. They came back to find their greenhouses shattered, the land they had been growing on taken out from under them, their businesses basically destroyed. And it it just, my father would get so angry when he recollected those years and how hard it was for those people then to pick things up and, and rebuild their lives and, you know, climb, get back on the saddle and, 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 and move forward.
0: One of the people who appears in your book, but not as your one of your four lead characters is someone I just want to mention. And then we'll, we'll close with something I want to talk about, but one of the um, supporting actors, if you will, is is Daniel Inouye. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about him? Because he, he's a, he's not, as well known as he ought to be, but he ought yeah. to be, you know, sort of very well honored.
1: Yeah. So Dan Inouye was one of the 442 guys who came back to Hawaii and, um, as I say, went to law school, actually, I think at Georgetown, um, or George Washington, um, and then came back to Hawaii and entered the, um, entered politics in Hawaii and of course became a U.S. Senator. Uh, from Hawaii. His, his experience in the war, one of the most, um, stirring of, of the battle scenes that I write about actually has to do with, with his unit. Very near the end of the war, uh, his squad got pinned down by German machine guns. And I won't describe it in great detail, but, um, his heroics there were absolutely mesmerizing when I was listening to his account of them and then, reading other sources uh, about what happened that day, absolutely extraordinary courage charging up a hill towards the end with one arm shattered, hanging by a few tendons, still firing his gun. It was just the kind of thing out of a, out of a movie. It was just absolutely astonishing uh, kind of physical courage.
0: Yeah. And, and, and you saw that with all four of your protagonists. And so when the, when the readers read the book, they'll, they'll get to read this as if it were a work of fiction and we'll see whether they, all your four end up okay. And how <laughs> yeah. they, how they end up, but I'm not about to, to, to spoil that ending because it is too gripping. But what I want to end on um, is um, Densho and um if you would talk a little bit about that, because I think the listening audience should know of it and maybe want to contribute to it to its work in, in in this day when uh discrimination against the AAPI community is as prevalent as it is, Densho is something that people should know about.
1: Absolutely. So this book really grew out of my uh, friendship with Tom Okeda and his Densho project. In Seattle, which I think I said, they've been collecting oral histories for 25 years, and making them freely available to anybody, to historians or writers like me who who wanted to learn more about the Japanese American American experience. It's all there for free for the for the viewing. Um, and Tom has, in the recent years, he's actually used Densho also um, increasingly for. Um, political activism around issues having to do with anti Asian discrimination and immigration issues and things like that, so he 's trying to use the history that he 's collected um, to um, to educate and enlighten Americans in general about that part of uh, our shared history it 's a wonderful cause um i um I contribute part of the proceeds of this book to dencho, and I would very much encourage you know listeners to go to densho.org, look at what they have there, and yeah, if at all possible uh, contribute to the cause because I think it's a great
0: one yeah and it's d e n s h o dot dot org so this brings us to to the end of our time. T- together Dan um it, it, it's a as I say it's a great read from a almost nonfiction standpoint uh historical nonfiction standpoint but it's a very important read and I'm hopeful that it gets widely circulated and as I said becomes mandatory reading in 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 our in our schools so now that we're done I can say thank you so much for writing this book and um Please get started on your next one.
1: Oh, thank you, Michael. I'm going to take a little bit of a break, but uh, but I'll get to it eventually.
0: Okay. Well, right. thank you so much. Thanks a lot. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at that said zeldin at com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.